0: Well hello everybody. It's great to be back and I wish the photos were working because I had some photos to show you of our trip but that's uh, you just have to imagine the uh, wonderful amazing colors of fall. Kathy and I went to the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina for a few days and saw beautiful leaves. I mean we couldn't have timed it better. We were sort of wondering maybe if we'd missed it, but uh, we hadn't. I don't know if you all have ever been up to the north part of North Carolina. I think it's up north, the uh, place called uh, Blowing Rock, and it's up there also by Boone. Well, anyway, Blowing Rock is just this wonderful vantage where you can just look out over this forest of just amazing, beautiful colors. I mean, bright, bright reds, bright, bright oranges, bright, bright, you know, yellows. Just you name it, and it was bright, bright. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And then we drove down from there to Charlotte and uh, visited the Billy Graham Library. If you've never been to the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, that'd be worth a trip to Charlotte just to see in and of itself. That's fantastic. But a couple of things I noticed about uh, just our subject today as we look at the book of Revelation is uh, from our trip. When I was walking, Kathy and I did a lot of hiking on these trails in the National Forest, and you see a lot of different people on these trails, uh, all kinds of people on these trails, people you think, my friend, you should not be on this trail. <laughs> and other people, it's like, get out of their way because they're going to knock you off the trail. Well, all, all kinds of people. And so there was one that had a lot of people passing us, and so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to say the exact same thing to every single person I pass. And it wasn't anything profound or biblical. It was just, uh, I don't even remember what it was. It was just sort of like, uh, hello, you know, good to see you, something like that, where I engaged a little bit more than just uh, howdy. And some people would walk by, and this one person, I kid you not, never even looked up, just walked by and went, uh oh. <laughs> It's sort of like a throwback to Nick Nolte, you know, movies, where that's about all Nick Nolte would say in his movies is, huh. Well, so, and other people, you know, this one guy, I thought I wasn't going to get rid of him. I mean, all I said was, hi, and, you know, how are you? And he just began to talk and just was walking along with us, and it's like, you know, (laughs) go go away. (laughs) He just was sticking with us. So all different kinds of people that you meet on, the, on these, uh, these events, and it was just sort of a nice reminder that God makes us all in different shapes and sizes, and a wonderful reminder of the blessing of not having to be with some types of people <laughs> all the time. It's just, no, I'm so glad that they're walking the other way. So anyway, I don't mean to be mean. It's just, you know, some personalities work with you. Some personalities don't work with you. So, but another thing that I observed in the trip is just the whole, um, just from the beauty of God's creation. You know, the purpose of God's creation and the beauty and majesty of it, whether it's a beautiful forest in the fall or a beautiful forest in the winter or a sunset or seeing an ocean that's just magnificent or the Rocky Mountains, whatever you look at that just gives you the awe of the power of God. You know, like Romans chapter 1 says, we look at that and we cannot deny his invisible attributes. We see his visible attributes or his invisible power in the visible creation that he makes. His creation displays his power. Or like Psalm 19 says it so well, that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. They proclaim the glory of God. The silence speaks in just their power But Psalm 19 also goes on to talk about not only the natural revelation that we see in creation, but also the special revelation that's in the Word of God. And we need both. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the natural revelation in creation that we see is enough to proclaim that there is a God, and enough, not only that, to also um, tell us that we are culpable before that God. Because part of God's natural revelation is not just you know the beautiful mountains, but it's our conscience. Part of our natural, the natural revelation is that we know when we've done wrong. And so we're culpable before this God who has power. We are without excuse, to use Paul's own words. So the natural revelation is enough to condemn us, but it's not enough to save us. We need God's special revelation through the Scriptures. To give us insight into how to solve our problem of sin. So, speaking of Revelation, uh, we're going to turn to Revelation. But sort of, uh, you know, it's easy to go both places. Before we look at Revelation, though, we're actually going to look at Genesis. (laughs) Don't worry, we're not going to try to go through the whole thing. (laughs) But we are finishing today, as Harry said, we're finishing a series that has taken quite a while to go through that is a single message from every single book of the bible and the goal really that i had as we started this series is just to give us some exposure to parts of the bible that we sometimes never look at i mean there are parts of the scriptures particularly like in the minor prophets that or the book of jude or third john that uh, we just really don't get much exposure to so we can't say that anymore we've seen touched them all And we're going to complete it today with the book of Revelation, which is a very popular book to look at and to to misunderstand. But first, turn to Genesis and look, if you would, at the first chapter, because when we started our series, we started, actually, and we called that particular message in Genesis, where we begin with God. And we talked about the fact that in Genesis, God's crowning creation which is humanity, was made only after everything else was made. Then he tells us the purpose in, in verse 27, Genesis 1, 27, the purpose for which God created us. Moses writes, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the purpose for humanity, we're told here in these verses, first of all, God blesses them and says, multiply and fill the earth. And then he says, rule the earth. God's purpose for humanity was to rule the earth. And that's chapter one in a very general sense, a very general sense. Then specifically in chapter 2, he goes on and he talks about the um, ruling the earth. You can rule the earth, but you've got to do it with my rules. Rule with my rules. Don't just rule according to what you think. And of course, we know the context of that. But look down at verse 9. It says, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Let me pause right there for just a second. I don't know about you, but this verse is pretty special to me, having just come back from a lot of trees that are pleasing to sight. That God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. It's sort of a little sidebar there, but God created things sometimes just to be pretty. It says it right there, pleasing to the sight. That was the purpose of God creating these particular trees. And there were some that were good for food. It goes on, a tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where'd that come from? I thought up to this point, everything God had made was good. Now, all of a sudden, you got this word, knowledge of evil. Wait a minute. What's evil doing? And even in the picture here, there is no evil in this world, is there? And if there is, why is it now just mentioned sort of, you know, kind of a throwaway statement? There's a tree that gives knowledge of good and evil. Well, there's a lot that we aren't told, at least at this point in the Bible, And so far in the scriptures here in these first two chapters, God's only telling us what he wants us to know, not everything that we want to know. And evil, of course, as we read through the rest of the scriptures, we know that God created man very good, and yet suddenly there is something described here as very evil. We know from the rest of the scriptures that God prior to this had created an angelic realm, and that at some point in prehistory, the angels a portion of the angels were—I guess all of the angels were—given uh, a choice: Are they going to follow God? Or are they going to follow this one rebel angel who, because of his pride, decided that he wanted to be like the Most High? Also called Lucifer, we know him as Satan. And so there was this angelic rebellion that happened before any of this is written, and the rest of the scriptures uh, we, we piece this theology together. So. This evil, this knowledge of good and evil, somehow this tree contains the knowledge of good and evil, and of course we know that they're commanded not to eat from that tree because, not, because eating from that tree would be against God's rule, which is amazing. When you think of everything that God gave them, he said you can eat from every tree on the planet except this one tree. This one tree, I'm going to basically tell you you can't eat from it. And if you do, in the day that you eat from it, you will die. Of course, Satan jumps in on the scene in the, in the form of a snake, crafty snake here in chapter 3, and lies to them to where they are deceived. Eve is deceived. Adam just flat out does it. And they eat. And, uh, of course, immediately they realize that they have sinned and that there's a separation between them and God, and they try to hide their nakedness with fig leaves. So anyway, there, obviously there's a lot we're jumping through. But get down to verse 15 now, chapter 3, verse 15. God tells the serpent, whom we know as Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here we have the very first hint first glimpse of how God is going to solve the problem that just started, the problem of sin that separates God from people. Now, the purpose, remember, to, for uh, humanity was that they rule over God's creation under God's rules, and they didn't do it. They fell for the, the lie uh, of the devil, and now humanity isn't ruling, isn't fulfilling God's purpose. God's purpose is for man to rule over his creation under God. Mankind didn't do that. All of a sudden, it's almost like Satan's won, and we're hardly out of the chute. And then God says here in, in this verse, sort of gives a, a, a hint, the first glimpse of the gospel, that this seed of woman, interestingly, not of man, but of woman, will bruise the head, I'm uh, uh, sorry, will crush the head of the, uh, of the serpent. And will have his his head will be or he will bruise the heel of the one who crushes. Or the word also here is bruise. You could you could let it translate either way. So God provided forgiveness. If we were to read on, we would see that God provided for Adam and Eve through the sacrifice of an animal. And here again, it's sort of a premonition of how God's going to solve the sin problem. In fact, Genesis one through eleven. You know, we won't look at it, but just sort of as a summary shows us that all the people of the earth, it just gets worse and worse and worse. A global flood didn't solve the problem. Tower of Babel, of course, they were supposed to scatter, fill the earth, just like God had said, but they didn't. They gathered to try to build an, a tower for their own name. And so God decides, in chapter beginning in chapter 12, that he will start with one man, Abraham. And from one man, Abraham, who was an idol worshiper, God called him out of his idol worship to follow the true God, took him to a land that was totally different, and promised him three things. I'll give you land, I'll give you descendants, and he, they were way past childbearing, so this was already a promised miracle, and I will give you blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And in that particular chapter, the word for blessing there is mentioned in those few verses to Abraham as much as it's been mentioned in all of Genesis prior to that. God blessed and he wanted blessing on the people. But sin, curse, blew that. And so God's going to restore that blessing through Abraham. All right. Well, history goes on. And of course, David's. God gave a covenant to David, who is descendant of Abraham, that, that one from David's line is going to rule over a throne, on David's throne. God made a covenant and a promise to Israel that he would give them a covenant that would forgive them of their sins and would put his spirit inside them. So God made a lot of promises to Israel. And really, that's what the, the Bible focuses on from Genesis 12 on, is God dealing with fulfilling these promises. Now, turn to the other end of the Bible, and let's look at the book of Revelation, all that sort of a setup, because Revelation is Genesis Part 2 in a way, It's especially the end of it. The book of Revelation is the Lord fulfilling His original plan for humanity, which didn't work because of sin the first time around, but God's going to make it work the next time around. The book of Revelation, first, Revelation is, well, I mean, what do you think of when you think of Revelation? You think of, you know, monsters, and you think of these uh, apocryphal images that no one really, really knows what they're talking about. It's sort of intimidating. You read Revelation, and you think, you know, this is hard work to try to figure out what this is about. It's not anything like reading the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is just like scraping the cream off the top of the milk, and you just eat it. <laughs> Revelation is like, you've got to go out and find the cow. It is a ton of work to get the same application that you do from the book of Proverbs. Revelation's hard work. But Revelation, I've come to understand, um, I I was intimidated by Revelation, to be honest, for a long time until (laughs) I actually studied it. And then I realized, you know what? It's not as hard as it looks because God didn't write the Bible to confuse us or to hide stuff from us. Now, it's not right on the surface, but if you study Revelation and study the Bible like it should be studied, that is, you compare Scripture with Scripture, you allow the book of Daniel to help you understand Revelation. You allow 1 and 2 Thessalonians, say that 10 times real fast, carefully. It'll make more sense. Uh, The Olivet Discourse that Jesus taught, it'll make more sense of the book of Isaiah. It'll make more sense. There's so much of the scripture prior to Revelation that sort of leads up to Revelation resolving it all. And so if you use the first 65 books in your study to understand Revelation, it's not as intimidating as it uh, as it seems. So I I challenge you, if you've never really studied Revelation, get you a good commentary, like, for example, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, very easy to read and understand, uh, and walk through this book, you will be inspired to worship our powerful, awesome God when you read the book of Revelation. So, Revelation chapter 1, uh, and I'm in 22 already, we'll get there. Look at Revelation chapter 1, and let's read a few of these verses. Revelation chapter 1, Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Look at all the different levels of communication there, from God to Jesus to the angel to John to us, or to the bondservants, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, probably just a very poetic reference to the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Father, the Spirit, and then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One more verse, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Well, there's a lot here, but just a few observations. This is the revelation that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah, Messiah means Israel. This is not Jesus just the Nazarene or Jesus last name Christ. This is Messiah Jesus. And so in the very first line of this, to call Jesus, Jesus Christ, is a reference to Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, and which, which has a lot of implications when you continue to read and interpret the book of Revelation. But also, it's written to the churches, to the seven churches of Asia, or in, mo- in modern Turkey, and it's to show what will happen. Jesus inspired this for his servants, and ultimately for us. And we're told in verse 3 that we're blessed not just if we read, but also if we heed. The one who reads, and hears the words, and who heeds. This is a book for application. It's not just a book for information of what's going to happen in the future. The book of Revelation is meant to inspire us to do something, to act. And let me just tell you up front, we're going to sort of put the the other bookend we began with genesis and sort of showed all the open loops we're going to close those loops and show how the bible is this wonderful bookend of god's plan and then we're going to circle back to one of these churches that jesus spoke to for application because we definitely want to walk out of here with something practical and not just informative notice the very first scriptural quotation in the book of revelation is from the book of Daniel, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now keep your place here in Revelation and turn back to Daniel chapter 7. I hope your fingers are limber because we're going to look at a few different places in the scriptures. Sometimes it's just best to say that because if you have to turn a lot you know, without saying that, people like, oh, I've got to turn again. We're going to turn a few times. It's okay, because we we need these various places to give us understanding. So Daniel chapter 7, look down at verse 13. Daniel 7, 13. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. This is what Revelation quotes. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Look down at verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, in context, this saints, we we hear the word saints, and we immediately want to baptize it with stained glass in some church. Saints, in this context, is Israel. It's not the church. The church is nowhere in the picture here. The saints of the highest one, the holy ones of the highest one, literally, will receive the kingdom. So this promised kingdom that uh, the Son of Man is coming to get from the Ancient of Days is the kingdom of promised to Israel. And this is clear as we go on. Look at verse 25. Look down at verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into His hand for a time, times, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's sort of Daniel-speak for a year, two years, and half a year. In other words, three and a half years. So this individual is going to to try to wear down the saints, or Israel, for three and a half years is what we're told, and this prior to this coming kingdom. So flip back to Revelation. All of that is implied in this verse 7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Remember... That's kind of interesting. I've got a bar right on my face there. Thanks, Dave. (laughs) Whenever you see a quotation in the New Testament from the Old Testament, picture it as a hyperlink on a web page. When you're on a web page and you see a hyperlink and you click it, up pops a whole new context, right? It's the same way with the New Testament. When you're reading the New Testament and there's this little verse Behold, he is coming with clouds. If you click on that, it takes you to Daniel 7, and we get the whole context that we just read. At least it should in our minds. When, when a passage is quoted, the context is implied, because Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. The reason that this is quoted is because the author is pointing to something that happened or the context that's back there. He is coming with the clouds is talking about him coming to rule over the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Daniel was talking about particularly the kingdom that was promised to Israel now we won't look at uh, Daniel 9 we've looked at it before in fact if you're not having' already turned back to revelation but we won't look at Daniel 9 he gives Daniel 9 gives a very specific timeline of end times events in verses 24 and following in Daniel 9 it reiterates the fact that the this, uh, this person who tries to wear down Israel, we know him by his better name, the Antichrist, does this for not just three and a half years, but seven years, and the last half of those seven years, three and a half years, is where it gets really bad. And Daniel chapter 9 gets into that details and specifically says that this period is for, speaking to Daniel, your people. Again, it's for Israel. It's not something that the church is involved in. So why do I keep making a point that this is for Israel? Because when we look at the book of Revelation, you've got the first three chapters of Revelation really focused on the church. In fact, these seven churches in particular, uh, Jesus has a specific message for each of these. But then starting chapter 4 of Revelation, we don't see the church in the book of Revelation anymore. In fact, John is told, come up here, and some even interpret that phrase, come up here, sort of as a a metaphor or as a picture of the rapture. We learn from other places in the scripture, particularly 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, which we looked at in our journey through those books, that uh, the Lord promised that Christians are not going to go through the tribulation period. Because that period is not for the church. It is for God dealing with Israel again as a nation. And so God removes us. So it makes sense then when, starting in Revelation chapter 4, God gets into the nitty-gritty of what this tribulation is going to look like. The church is not mentioned. The church isn't mentioned again until, you don't have to turn there just yet, but Revelation 19 and following when Jesus comes back again to reign on the earth, and the church comes back with him, riding white horses, right behind Jesus on his white horse of victory. So, when we look at when we think of Revelation, we usually think about that center section that's sort of this, you know, dark clouds and lightning and earthquakes and all the bad stuff that's going to happen in the future. Turn to Revelation seven, and let's look at one of these examples. Revelation chapter 7, Uh 12, sorry, Revelation 12, Revelation chapter 12. Sorry, you have to interpret me. Don't just listen to what I say. <laughs> uh, I'm doing all I can to finish this in 20 minutes. So big, big, big chapter, big, big challenge. So Revelation 12, look at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, bonus question, where in the Old Testament does it talk about the sun and the moon and 12 stars? Who said Joseph? Harry gets an extra donut. Good job, Harry. Exactly. In the book of Genesis, remember one of Joseph's dreams? He said, "I had a dream that the moon and the stars uh, the moon and the sun and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Joseph being the uh, a twelve star. So and this is the twelve tribes of Israel. In Joseph's dream, Joseph's vision this represented, we're told there in that context that it represented the twelve tribes of Israel. So here again, in Revelation twelve, When we're talking about the 12 stars crowning this woman, this woman represents the 12 tribes of Israel. Scripture interprets Scripture. And we're told, verse 2, she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour the child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron." Ha ha ha! So who is this child? It's Jesus. So Israel produces Jesus, and this dragon, whoever he is, is per- poised to destroy this child. Did that happen at the birth of Jesus? Absolutely it did. Herod the Great did his best to try to destroy Jesus, and the Lord, of course, preserved him. Keep reading. Verse 5, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,200 60 days, and if you do the math, that's exactly three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time. And then look down verse 9. Now we're told who this this, uh, dragon is. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we could sort of guess in the book of Genesis chapter three that that was Satan, but it's not until the very end of the Bible here in Revelation that we're actually told specifically the serpent of old was Satan. So we start seeing in Revelation these, um, these this closure to the open loops. You see the open loops in Genesis one through three of God. God's purpose for humanity, Satan coming in and messing up that purpose. Now the book of Revelation begins to bring up these themes again for closure. And um, so here we have Israel being persecuted again for three and a half years by Satan. Um, Let's see what else we got here. Verse 13 and 14, look down at, at that. It says, When the dragon saw that he was thrown to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So now we're using Daniel language to talk about this second half of the tribulation or the last part of the tribulation where Israel will be persecuted. And she flees into the wilderness. I don't know how some people get Petra out of this. Have you ever heard the idea of their, this of Israel fleeing into the wilderness, you know, being Petra? Show me where that is. And it's just you're not going to find it in the Bible anywhere. So if you ever hear that, just kind of smile and nod. Hmm. But it's great for tourism if you want to go to Petra. But it's, there's, there's nothing in the scripture that implies that at all. At all. All right. So now turn to Revelation 22. Getting toward the end here. Revelation 22. I wish we had time to look at Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 because they are wonderful in the, the grand scheme of our theme. But we have already looked at those. I don't know if you remember, we did a series on prophecy. Uh, I think it was last year or a couple years ago. But anyway, um, focused on when Jesus comes again. And we'll see that, you know, when uh, we saw that in, in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes again. As I mentioned, we called the the message I called the message in Genesis when uh where we start with God or where we begin with God, and this one we're calling where we begin again with God. Because Revelation twenty one and twenty two are in this wonderful sense God just sort of restarting. A new heaven, a new earth God creates. And he created the first heaven and the first earth. And it's a beautiful picture. Look at Revelation twenty two. Verse one John writes, Then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever." The tree of life, we're told, is mentioned here again. And it was remember, it was in God's original creation. And remember why Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden? Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. So there's something about the tree of life that we aren't told here that has this this ability, you might say, or God designed it to be a sustaining agent for people. In fact, we're even told here the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing is sort of a misleading word. You might better, uh, the word could also be translated sustenance. It's for the provision, it's for the sustenance of the nations, it's for the health of the nations. And there's something about it that, uh, that, that enables or that helps us in our eternal life. I don't know what it is. Uh, we're not told in the scriptures what it is, but it's undeniable because Genesis talks about it. This was God's concern to keep them away from that tree. And here it's mentioned again, the leaves of this tree are used for the sustenance of for the health of the nations. So big question mark on that. But there it is. Both at the beginning God's creation and God's new new earth, we're told here that this tree of life is there. And it is forever. It is an eternal. We will see his face, and verse 5, we're told they will reign forever and ever. This is the eternal state. All right, here's the very last turn. I promise. We'll turn back to Revelation chapter 3 and let's get practical. I guess in a, in a sense it's practical enough to look at our awesome amazing God how he uses all of history to bring, you know, to this wonderful climax in the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. In which he rules on the earth for a thousand years, Revelation tells us, which is the fulfillment of all the promises to Old Testament Israel. That would be enough of us to just fall down and worship him. But to get real practical, the Lord Jesus inspired seven messages to seven churches, and we're going to pick one of these. We're going to look at the one to Laodicea in chapter 3 at the end, starting in verse 14. Revelation three 14. let's look at that. To the angel of the church at Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, he's writing to Christians here, to the church, or specifically to the angel or the messenger, perhaps the passenger, the pastor of that church. And he says, uh, your deeds, you're neither hot nor cold. Now, some people take this when Jesus says, uh, I wish that you were hot or cold, or you're neither hot nor cold, meaning right or wrong, but that's probably not what it means. In fact, I'm pretty certain that's not what it means. At Laodicea, Laodicea was in a valley, and there were three cities in the valley there, and Paul actually refers to them all in the book of Colossians when he writes to the Colossians. One was Colossae, one was Laodicea, one was Hierapolis. And Laodicea did not have any source of water for itself. It had to pipe water in. But Colossae had nice, cool water. I've seen it. I mean, it's, it's cool and beautiful. It flows right there beside the Tell of Colossae. Hierapolis has hot springs, and it's still a major tourist draw today. If you go, in fact, just Google Hierapolis hot springs, you know, when you get a chance, this, this, this pristine white formations, it's like stalagmite that keep growing, and this hot water, it's like going to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and going to Hierapolis there in Turkey today. This is what Jesus means, he says, your is not hot or cold. He says, it's not like your neighbors. You know, Hierapolis has got the hot water. Colossae has got the cool water. Uh, Laodicea, you don't have any. Your water has to be piped in. And by the time the water got from one of these two places to, to Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. And not only that, but it had a high mineral content. And if you go to Laodicea, you can find pipes from ancient Laodicea that had this calcium buildup that was like, it's almost just like clogged. It had so much of this mineral content in it, I'm told, that it tasted kind of gross. So you've got Jesus' metaphors here. He says, you're neither hot or cold, and when I drink it, I want to spit it out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, I wish you were hot or cold. Verse 15, notice he says that. I wish that you were cold or hot. The idea there is, then you'd be useful. But because you're not, because you're lukewarm, because you are neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. It's the idea of not being effective for Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, of course, not only wrote Revelation, but he also wrote the Gospel of John in this very familiar verse we know, John fifteen five. he says, Jesus says, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. This is speaking of fellowship with him, not salvation. This is fellowship with him. And this was the problem of Laodicea. Laodicea is beautiful. I've had the privilege of being there, and the ruins at Laodicea are magnificent. I would rank them second only to Ephesus in all of Turkey. It is beautiful, Laodicea. But, but Laodicea was, um, they were very rich in their day. They had an earthquake in the early part of the first century, and Rome helped them rebuild. And then about 50 years later, they had another earthquake, and they were so wealthy, they just said, you know what, Rome, we don't need your help this time. We'll take care of it ourselves. They minted their own coins. This was a very wealthy area. And it led to some arrogance and independence that spilled over into their spiritual lives. Look at verse 17. Jesus addresses this. He says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. See, this is what Jesus is referring to their self-reliance based on their wealth. They saw themselves as rich and needing nothing. Jesus said, no, you're just the opposite. Your self-reliance has led to you being ineffective. You're lukewarm. In your walk with me, because you're so self reliant. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, Laodicea it was this it was this same idea. Verse nineteen, he has this wonderful, difficult verse. Jesus says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Jesus is doing all this and saying all this to them because he loves them. Now, I'm not sure where you are in your personal walk with God. Honestly, we go up and down in our walk with God on a daily if not hourly basis, don't we? I mean, generally, we've got where we are if you want to sort of have an average in our walk with God. But boy, sometimes we can feel so distant from the Lord. Maybe it's because we just decided, you know what, God, I'm tired of trusting you for this particular, uh, this particular thing in my life, or God, I've prayed so long, and uh, you're just not coming through for me. I'm just going to handle this myself, because this must be handled, and Lord, you're doing nothing. It's sort of like Mary and Martha who have prayed and asked or asked Jesus to come, and uh, Lazarus dies like, Lord, you could have taken care of this. If you'd been here, he would not have died. I mean, you can hear the disappointment just flowing from them as they're weeping. We feel that way with the Lord sometimes, don't we? And when we do that, it's so easy to just drift off and to use our own common sense instead of walk with God with faith and continue to trust him even though he hasn't shown up, at least in our estimation. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so if we wander from God, we can expect that he will reprove us and discipline us. For what purpose? That we be zealous and repent. That we turn. The word repent doesn't just mean change action. Literally, the word means a change of mind. Or literally, more literally, it means a change of mindset. That when Jesus challenges us to repent, he means change your thinking. Quit thinking like you know you've been thinking that it's all up to you, or that you've got to make it happen. If I don't make it happen in time, no, change your mindset. And he says, get from me that which you need. And he gives these wonderful, uh, these wonderful illustrations. Buy from me gold refined, so that you can have true riches, white garments. I mean, these are all metaphors. He says, you try to do this yourself, you don't realize. That in my estimation, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But if you come to me, I will give you that which you need. Now, you're still going to have to trust me, but you will be right in my eyes. And then verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Often this is used for evangelism, and I guess the principle is there, but that's not the context. The context is a Christian who's out of fellowship. The context is these Laodiceans who decided, you know what, we're so wealthy, we can take care of it ourselves, Rome. And by the way, Lord, we can probably handle this one without you. Thanks. Jesus says, no, you're out of fellowship with me when you do that. And look at his gracious invitation. Jesus doesn't kick the door down. His his, uh, reproving and his discipline is amazingly gentle, isn't it? He doesn't say, I beat on the door or I kick down the door to, to enter in. He stands at the door and knocks. And then notice this, he says, if anyone hears my voice. We're not hearing the knock. We're hearing his voice. He's outside calling to be able to come in. Christ wants that fellowship with us. And if we're not in fellowship, he wants to have it back. And he is constantly knocking. You ever felt that knock? I feel that knock. I have felt that knock. When I know that I'm out of fellowship with God, I can almost, I mean, it's not like a physical feeling, but I can't avoid him. It's like, I think we've talked about before, it's like trying to run from your shadow. You ever tried to run from your shadow? It keeps up. So does the Lord. Jesus is outside the door of our hearts, knocking and calling. And all we have to do, we're told, is simply open the door. And what happens when we open the door? When we are, to use verse 19's words, zealous and repent. Repent. Jesus promises, I will come in, I will dine, and you with me. There will be fellowship restored once again. Not only that, we're told, if you're curious that this has anything to do with your salvation, verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is written to Laodicea, but notice it is the Spirit is talking to the churches, plural, which means us as well. It doesn't just mean all these seven churches, but it means us. It means us. And he says, he who overcomes. What does that mean? Well, if we were to, again, Scripture interprets Scripture, John writes in his epistles that the one who overcomes is the one who believes in Jesus. So if you're Believing in Jesus, you overcome. You have overcome. And this is speaking of the security of your salvation in a context where Jesus is disciplining the erring individual. We are still secure in spite of the fact that Jesus is knocking, asking for fellowship. Beautiful picture. And what I love about this, this knocking metaphor that Jesus uses is it's in the book of Revelation where Jesus is presented not as this milquetoast Jesus meek and mild. Jesus is the powerful Lord of creation. He created everything, and he's going to recreate everything, and he comes the second time in wrath to unbelievers. I mean, ugly wrath. Wrath to where we're told in Revelation 19 at the, when the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus appears on that white horse and he speaks a word and their eyes rot in their sockets before they even hit the ground. This is g- gentle Jesus, meek and mild, coming with wrath on unbelievers who have had every opportunity but have chosen not to repent. And yet this powerful God in the flesh, the Son of Man, we're told here, when, it, when it's fellowship that needs to be restored, he doesn't come with that same wrath and that same urgency and anger. He's knocking on the door, and he's calling. Such a contrast between how he treats unbelievers who will not repent and believers who are out of fellowship with him. It's an invitation that we come back into fellowship with a promise that we'll be in fellowship with him if we will repent. It's easy to do to get out of fellowship with God. And to use the Laodicea metaphor, uh, we're pretty wealthy as well. I mean, financially. We lack for pretty little in our our culture and, and even in this room. Now obviously more people got more than others, but if you compare with humanity across the globe, we are pretty wealthy, and we can You know, when we can just do a couple of clicks on Amazon and in two days they bring us whatever we want, why pray about it? I mean, seriously, how many of you pray and ask God for whatever it is before you go to Amazon? We don't. We're so conditioned to just get what we want. And Laodicea was the same way. And Jesus says, just be careful. I'm glad you got that blessing. I'm glad that you're wealthy. Uh, I've given it to you for your enjoyment. But don't let it make you become independent of me, because those whom I love I will reprove and discipline. It's a warning that comes with a promise of restoration. He doesn't push his way in, but uh, he wants to come in. What a wonderful, wonderful book, the book of Revelation. Well, let's pray. Our Father, of the course of these 66 books, we have seen what your Word says, and that is that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, even Leviticus, even the book of Obadiah, even 3 John, these obscure books that seem to hardly ever show up before our faces, as, rest, as the rest of the Scriptures we have seen is indeed profitable. And as we look at Revelation, we are overwhelmed with the wonder of your power and the wonder of your grace as well as your anger and wrath at sin because of what it does for your glory and for what it does for the good of us. Thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for wrapping up all the loose ends of history, or, or you will, as we see revealed here in Revelation. For the second coming of Jesus Christ that fulfills all the promises to Israel, that allows us the privilege of living on this earth as you intended, that you have sent a man to do what no other person has done, that is Jesus Christ, to rule under your authority and under your power, fulfilling your purpose for humanity. We're honored to be part of that. And Lord, we pray for any that are here that may not have that confidence, that instead face the potential wrath of God because they don't know Jesus Christ, that they're going to try to earn their way to heaven by their good life, good deeds, or good whatever. Show them the folly of that, because sin separates us from you. Thank you for Jesus' death on the cross that took that sin away, and we pray that they would simply believe and be welcomed into the wonderful group of um, of those who are saved and who look forward to the coming of Jesus. And for those of us, Lord, that have placed our faith in Jesus, may we always stay close to him. And even in our ignorance when we wander and we hear that gentle knocking and that tender voice asking to come in, help us to open, help us to be zealous and repent. Help us to come back into fellowship because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Father, we're grateful for this book and grateful for all that we will continue to learn in it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.